Today's sermon comes from Malachi 3, 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, did not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need for more. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. James Kennedy, he was a pastor. Uh, he has since passed, but he was the pastor of a large church in South Florida for many years. And he tells the story about a man that came to Peter Marshall, who was the, uh, uh, the chaplain for the United States uh, Senate. And this man came to Dr. Marshall with a, a concern about tithing. He said this, I have a problem. I've been tithing for some time. It wasn't too bad when I was making 20000 a year. I could afford to give the 2000 But you see, now I'm making 500000 And there's just no way I can afford to give away 50000 a year. So Dr. Marshall reflected on the, the man's dilemma, and didn't offer any advice, but he said to him, I, sir, I see that you have a problem. Let's just go ahead and pray. Would that be all right? And the man agreed. And so Dr. Marshall prayed, dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Lord, reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. giving, giving generously. It's talked about all over the scriptures. We see the Lord speaking about it here through the prophet Malachi. We see the apostle Paul talk about it uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, where he, he tells the Corinthian church to excel in the grace of giving, meaning excel, meaning Think about it and, and, and plan it and, and be intentional about it. Excel. And we see Jesus in the Gospels talk about it much. So it begs the question, how do you honor God through the stewardship of money? How do you honor God through the stewardship of money? And to answer that, we're going to explore the problem with not giving, the direction of generous giving, and then the blessing of giving. So let's start with the problem with not giving. Now, maybe the most striking part of this passage is that before God addresses his people and says, you're robbing me, which is harsh language, before he gets there, he reminds them and announces again to them his steadfast love. He reminds them that there is this love relationship 
between God and his people. Not a working relationship, not merely a contractual relationship where both parties are at the table, but they don't want to be, they just have to be, but a love relationship, a relationship that's bound by steadfast love. That's what we see in verse six and verse seven. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. In this love relationship, God says, I don't change. You have walked away. You have sinned. You have committed idolatry numerous times over and over, but I don't walk away. God says, I don't change. I'm the steady. Because this relationship ultimately is not bound by your obedience or your performance or your works. This relationship is bound by my steadfast love, God says. Therefore, you're not consumed. You're not destroyed. Because my steadfast love is what is driving this. What's steadfast love? Let me read to you from Psalm 103. Verses eight to 13 captures it beautifully. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Amen to that. We would be in a world of hurt if God dealt with us according to our sins and our idolatry. He doesn't nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Listen, if you're in Christ, your salvation is secure. Your forgiveness is sure, not because of how you have responded to God, but because of what God has done in his son, Jesus Christ, in his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God, period. Your salvation is secure because Jesus Christ died for you and rose for you. God's steadfast love is what binds this love relationship together. You sin, you commit idolatry, you walk away, and God doesn't change, verse 6 says, and because of his steadfast love, you're not consumed. You're not destroyed because your punishment fell on Jesus. So right out of the gate in this very hard passage about giving, God says, let me announce my gospel to you so that you hear this in the context of a love relationship. Out of the assurance of his steadfast love, God says at the end of verse seven, now return to me. Now return to me. See, the Israelites had become hard-hearted. They had sinned. They had walked away from God. They had committed idolatry. The bride had offended the bridegroom. That's the relationship that the Bible teaches and displays our relationship to God by. Bride and bridegroom. The bride had offended the bridegroom. Israel had become hard-hearted, and God said, return to me. 
I'm not changing. I'm not walking away. I love you. I want you in a relationship with me, and I'm going to pursue you. So return to me. It was said earlier, if you're in Christ, for God to walk away from you would mean that he would have to walk away from his own son and his son's work on the cross. And that is not God's character. So your salvation is secure. Now, you would imagine that if God leads with this announcement to his people who have sinned and walked away, you'd think their hearts would be melted, right? Oh, God, yes, we're going to return to you. But that's not really the case. Because you look at the end of verse 7, but you say, how shall we return? So the people's response is, oh, God, how shall we return? What exactly have we done? What's the problem here? What's the problem in this love relationship? Verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Now, isn't it interesting that God singles out money as the evidence that his people have sinned and rebelled and walked away from him? Now, this shouldn't surprise us for two reasons. The first reason is this, that when Jesus in his gospels, do you realize how much Jesus in his gospels talks about money? I'll tell you, 16 of the 38 parables are concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, an amazing one out of 10 verses, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. That's the one reason it shouldn't surprise us. The second, though, is this. If you're married, what is one of the things that creates tension and conflict in your marriage? It's money. Maybe this has happened in your marriage where, where you and your spouse have, have agreed to save a certain amount of money for some special purchase or some special getaway, whatever it may be. And then you're checking the credit card statement or you're checking the checkbook or the bank account and you see that your spouse way overspent at Home Depot or way overspent at Bed Bath & Beyond. What happens in that moment? Right? You feel betrayed. That There's a fracture in the intimacy of the relationship because you had agreed on something and then one of you went off and selfishly did something with the money that was supposed to be for both of you putting it together for this special purchase or whatever it may be. There's betrayal. There's a, there's a breach in, in the relationship. There's a fracture. That's what God's saying here. He's saying, listen, this is a love relationship. This is a love relationship, and you're robbing me. You're robbing me. And, and then what's their next question? How? How are we robbing you? Right? How are we robbing you? Into verse 8. In your tithes and contributions. Now, what does this mean? Well, the word tithe literally means a tenth. 
That's what the word means. A tenth or 10%. And we see that the tithe or the concept or practice of tithing developed very early in the scriptures in Genesis 14. When Abram gives a tenth of everything he has to Melchizedek, who is a priest of God. And when we run through uh, Hebrews chapter seven, we see that Melchizedek was a forerunner of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Then we see that, that tithing continue in the Mosaic law underneath Moses. And we read in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22, God commands his people to tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So that meant if, if your uh, produce or your field yeeded, yielded, say, 90 bushels of wheat, that you would give nine of those to the Lord. Or if your cows had 30 calves, you would give three of those to the Lord. That was the tithe or the tenth. The reality is, is there were actually three types of tithes in the Old Testament under Mosaic law. Three types. The first was what was called the Levitical tithe. This was, we see this in Numbers chapter 18. That the Levitical tithe was the tithe that they would give to the Levites, the priests who served in the temple and served the congregation. That was the first one. The, the second tithe was called the, the tithe of the feasts. We see this in Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 27. And this was a tithe that was for all the God's people that were scattered that, that several times a year would come to Jerusalem for an annual feast. They'd come to the temple and they would worship God and they would celebrate the glorious salvation they had. This would be similar today to think about, uh, and that was a tithe that would cover their expenses for their family to travel to Jerusalem, worship, celebrate the feast and come back home. Think today of if you have children and you send your child off to a Christian summer camp, or if you send your child to a weekend retreat with the youth group, or if you as a family go to a conference together, or as a married couple, you go to a marriage retreat, right? All that it costs to do that. That, that was the tithe of the feasts or something similar there. And then the third tithe that we see at the end of Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, verses 28 and 29, was the tithe uh, for the poor or for the community. And so they would, they would tithe uh, money or resources that would be used to help the poor in the community. Now, when you total all three of those tithes up, the last one, the one to the poor, was actually only given once every three years. When you total those up, it was about 20 to 25% of the income of an Israelite when you total those tithes up. The point is this, when God says, you're robbing me, he's saying, listen, we're in this love relationship and we've got this agreement. I've asked you to tithe for the purposes of the kingdom and all that we're doing and you're not following through. He says, you're robbing me. And because of that, our, our love relationship and the intimacy of it is affected by that. He says, so return to me. Right, return to me. And the evidence of returning to me is to, to start giving. So how, how do you honor God through the stewardship of money? Well, we've looked at the problem with not giving and what God equates that to, which is literally robbing from God or stealing from God. 
Second, let's explore the direction of generous giving. And we're going to look at two parts here. First, the amount. And second, where should it go? Where should it go? Let's start with the amount. The question is, does God want you to tithe? Now, by that, I'm not asking, does God want you to give, right? Because that's clear. We all say, yes, of course, God wants us to give. Does he want you to tithe, which is a tenth? Well, you won't, although that was in the Old Testament, you'll find no prescription in the New Testament about a tenth or about 10%. You won't find it. What you will find is the Apostle Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, there's two critical points that come out of this verse. The first is this, to give what you have decided in your heart, that word decided means that there's intention, that there's planning. God says, I want your giving to be intentional, not just after you've you know, paid the car loans, paid the mortgage, paid the kids' tuition, bought groceries, saved for vacation. If there's some left over, we'll give it. That's not what this is saying. In fact, just the opposite, just as you do financially plan for things, like saving up for a car, or saving up for a vacation, or for wedding, for college one day, whatever it may be, the intentionality that you do that with, even more so, or to a greater degree, God says, you need to be intentional and plan your giving. That you have to make a decision, right? It's intentional. Proverbs 3 says it this way, honor God with your wealth, your money, your resources. Give the first fruits of everything. That means that really what God says is, At the very top, God says, plan what you're going to give, decide on that, and then plan how you're going to do everything else. Car, mortgage, house, tuition, all of that, right? First fruits, decide, and then plan the rest of it around that. Now, the second point to see in this 2 Corinthians 9, 7 verse is that God leaves the amount up to you. He leaves the amount up to you. And you say, well, what are the guidelines? Well, the story of the scriptures are one, which means that the the guidelines of the Old Testament are at least guidelines. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, an Israelite was giving 20 to 25% of his income if he was being faithful. Granted, that was three different tithes totaled together. But 10% is probably a good starting point. You know, the, the, the scriptures from old to new, everything expands, right? As you move into the New Testament and Pentecost and the gospel, going to the nations and everything's moving outward and expanding, right? So certainly when it comes to giving, we're not talking about shrinking. Certainly consistent is 10% a good starting place and to work from there. Here's the key. God's not looking at the percentage. He's not looking at the percentage. He's looking at your heart. And he wants to know, and he wants to see whether or not you're being generous. That's the key. God loves a cheerful giver, right? A generous giver. 
He wants to see a generous heart. Now, second, that's the, the amount discussion, but second, where should your giving go, right? Where do you direct your giving? Look at verse 10, the beginning of verse 10. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, what is this describing? Well, in the Old Testament, God's people would bring the tithe that in that time would be uh, crops or grain or olive oil, and they would bring it to the temple and the priests would put it in literally a storehouse or a warehouse. And then the priests would use it to fund the ministry, all that needed to happen in and around the temple. And there were, there were usually three major needs that were met from this storehouse where God's people had brought their tithe. And the first was, the first need was that these goods were used to support the priests and the Levites, the ones that were serving in the temple. They didn't have another job. So their income came from serving in the temple. And so out of the storehouse, their needs would be met. The second way it would be used would be for the poor in the community or the needs of the community. So the priest would decide out of the storehouse how they would use it to help people that had need. And then the third use of it was to keep the temple going, operate the temple. They needed, uh, they needed olive oil. They needed oil in the lamp so there could be light in the temple. So there are these three ways that they would use the, the funds that would come in or the giving that would come into the storehouse. What does this mean for us today? Well, the church is the new Israel, right? The scriptures speak about God redeeming a people, redeeming a family. He was redeeming a family in the Old Testament called Israel. In the New Testament, the, the, old Israel, the new Israel now is the church that God is still redeeming a, a people through the church. So all that we see happening in the temple as far as giving and, the, and what was happening with the operation of the temple, it certainly translates to the church today, right? Because the church is the new Israel. And so we bring our tithes and offerings to the church and trust the church and the leadership of the church right, to fund the ministry as God has called for. We see this in, in Acts chapter four, even in the early church. Verses 34 to 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, the key here is this was speaking of they would bring their, their, their giving would come and then be used to, to help the poor. But the key here is that they would bring their gifts and lay it at the apostles' feet, which the apostles were the elders of the early church. And so they come and, and lay the gifts at the apostles' feet, which today is laying the gifts at the, churches, at, at the, at the, at the church with the elders to fund the ministry. Pay the salaries of missionaries, pastors, staff members, uh, help provide for needs in the community, um, help have space to worship in. For us, that means renting space. For a church that has a building, it might mean utility bills and a mortgage, whatever it is, right? But the key is, in the early church we see in Acts 4, they weren't doing their own thing. 
they weren't doing their own thing individually. They were actually coming together and pooling their resources and trusting the apostles and trusting the church to use the funds that are given right, to spread the gospel. So what does this say about the direction of our giving? It says that a bulk of our giving should go through the local church. That a bulk of our giving should go through the local church. Now I say a bulk, not all necessarily, but a bulk of it should go through the local church. That we're not a bunch of individuals deciding what to do with our giving or even being in control of exactly how our giving is spent, right, our money, but we actually come as a, as a body, as a family, and we pool our resources and lay it at the church's feet and trust the, the leadership and the elders right, to fund the ministry that God has called the church to do. So how do you honor God through the stewardship of money? We've looked at the problem with not giving. We, we've explored the direction of generous giving. Now, finally, let's look at the blessing of giving. The blessing of giving. This is what I love about this passage. Thousands of years ago, God's people were wrestling with the very same things that you and I wrestle with around giving. And we see this in the tone, uh, in the tone of verse 10. When the Lord says, put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Put me to the test, he says. It sounds like God's people are struggling with this fear of provision. Lord, if, if, if we tithe, are we gonna have enough to make it? Now that was real. Let me give you the, the context. God's people had been in, years earlier, had been in exile in Babylon. And they were there for 70 years. And towards the end of that exile, the Persians overthrew the Babylonians and took, you know, God's people were now prisoners of war. And they said, hey, let's let them go back and rebuild their nation. Because that'll be good for us. We're gonna tax them heavily. So let them rebuild their nation. We're gonna tax them heavily. We profit. And so God's people were under heavy taxation at the time that Malachi writes this. Not, not to mention because it was an agricultural society, they always had the threat of pests destroying their crops in a year. They had the threat of no rain and drought that would fail to produce a crop. And so they're, they're thinking, well, if we tithe, are we gonna be able to pay our taxes? And if we pay our taxes, are we gonna be able to put food on the table? It's the same thing you and I face. If I give generously, am I gonna be able to pay my mortgage? Am I going to be able to put food on the table? Am I going to be able to provide for my children? They were facing the same questions that you and I face when it comes to giving generously. And what's God's answer? What's his answer? Well, in short, he says, trust me. Give, tithe, and trust me. Look at verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. In Old Testament times, the people's fortunes were tied to the land, the land of Israel. 
And so we see in the Old Testament, when God says, I will bless you, right? Give, give beyond what you think you're capable of. I will bless you. A lot of times in the Old Testament, it's tied to land and it's tied to material blessing. But what we see is this, this picture of land in the scriptures from the Garden of Eden to the promised land, that plot of land in the middle of the East, is that God is redeeming his whole world. As you move through to Revelation, the land is the new heavens and the new earth. So when we move from Old Testament to New Testament, right, the land, the emphasis switches to the, the new heavens and the new earth as it's progressing that way. And so now a lot of the blessings that, that God speaks of aren't necessarily material possess or blessings tied to the land. They're blessings tied to the new heavens and the new earth, which means spiritual blessings that are tied up in heaven for us today. And you gotta be careful. Otherwise, and it's been done. You read this passage and you say, well, I'm gonna give and I'm gonna get rich. That's not what it means. You'll get spiritually rich. That's what God's talking about, right? So the blessing from giving generously may be a clear conscience. It may be freedom from anxiety. Seems the opposite. But the reality is when you give beyond what maybe has you anxious, God blesses you. Freedom from anxiety. It might be a victory. It might be victory over a certain sin pattern in your life. It may be joy and peace in the face of cancer or joy and peace in the face of job loss. Or it may be a restored and reconciled relationship with a friend or a family member. It may be several of your neighbors coming to Christ. Or it may just be the deep peace that flows out of an intimate relationship with God. Remember where this passage started. God starts with this relationship bound with steadfast love. This love relationship between God and his people and he says, you've walked away. What's the evidence of it? You're not tithing. That was the evidence that they weren't tithing. But the whole issue is this relationship. God says you need to give. Why? Why? So that the intimate relationship of trust is restored between God and his people. That's what, it, what is at stake here. Isaiah 30, 15, I love what it says. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. God wants your heart. He wants you. And giving is one of the ways, or a lack of giving, is one of the ways that we walk away and we experience this fracture in our relationship with God, this lack of intimacy because we've walked away. You know, in, in trust and quietness is your rest, Isaiah says. You realize that if you're not giving, if you're not tithing, it's an issue of trust, that your trust is misplaced. You're placing your trust in something or someone other than Christ. And the evidence of that is that you're not giving because something has become so important that all of your resources are going to that because functionally that's where you're putting your trust. 
And that's why God says this issue of not giving is not just pragmatic. It's about your heart being restored. Let me give you an example. I'll go back to marriage. If, if my wife and I had planned on uh, pooling our resources and, and putting aside some portion of money for a special something, special purchase, and I go out and I overspend at Home Depot, whatever it is, what's going to happen? There's going to be major conflict in our marriage. Why? Because there's been betrayal and there's now trust issues because we agreed to something and I went another way. Now, if I said, okay, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to get money back into that pool that we had you know, decided to save for this special thing. If I did that, would the point be, look now, we can actually go do this special thing. No, the whole purpose behind that would be to what? Restore the relationship, to rebuild the trust. What's interesting here in Malachi 3 is God does not say, you're robbing me and the temple's about to be shut down, right? Or you're robbing me and now ministry can't happen. So give so ministry can happen. That's not what he did. Nor is it today. Hey, tithe and give so the church can do its ministry. That's not the point. It's a byproduct. God says, tithe and give so that our love relationship can be restored to intimacy and trust. That it's a matter of the heart so that your heart can experience the joy and freedom of trusting God and not your idols when you're giving at a level that forces you to trust him. God says, give, tithe, give generously. Why? Because I'm concerned about your heart and I'm concerned about our relationship. And that when you give, God says, I will bless you. I will pour out my blessing on you, which means in all the different ways that can happen, that our relationship will be restored and there will be intimacy and trust. That is what is at the heart of giving and giving generously. Let's pray. Father, it is... It's convicting when we think about all the various ways that we can sin against you and that we can rebel and that we can walk away from you. Oftentimes we forget that one of the ways that we do that is how we handle our money. And that one of the ways we do that is, to, is, is by not giving, not being generous with our giving. So Father, we pray boldly that you would bring us to a place where we can trust you, that we would trust you, that we would give, that we would tithe in a way that actually forces us to trust you. And that in doing so, we would experience the great joy and freedom of not being bound by our money but being bound to you in steadfast love. 
Father, would you make us generous givers? And as we talk about this, we are reminded that Jesus, you were the one that was rich, that became poor, so that by your poverty, we could become rich, not materially, but spiritually. Father, as we close in worship, would we be reminded of your blessing over us, of your steadfast love that secures our forgiveness, secures our salvation. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.